Are you still buying your meat from the supermarket? If so, you simply don't know what you're getting. Was the animal treated ethically? Was it fed contaminated grain? Was it chemically treated just before processing? If you care about your health and that of the animal, you'll want to know the answers to these questions. Thankfully, buying directly from the farmer solves for all these problems. Jake and Anne Walkie run Walkie Farms, a regenerative operation in Albury, New South Wales, raising beef, lamb, pastured pork and eggs to the highest standards of animal welfare, land stewardship and chemical free practice. I am excited to partner with Walkie Farm to offer you 10% off the entire Walkie range, from delicious steaks to sausages, lamb rocks, racks and even lard and tallow to replace your seed oils. All orders are packaged and shipped frozen to your door all around Australia. If you have a local farm, by all means, source from them. But if you lack easy access to regenerative produce, then Walkie Farms have you covered. Use code DRMAX at the checkout. That's D-R-M-A-X for 10% off. Circadian health is a bedrock of optimal health. No matter your exercise routine or how clean your diet, if you disrespect your light environment, you will get sick. Cancer, diabetes, obesity, mental health disorders, autoimmune disease, thyroid problems are just some of the issues that can either be worsened or fixed with circadian choices. My 30-day circadian reset is a guided program to help you learn the basics of circadian health. For 30 days, we focus strictly on things like seeing every sunrise, spending as much time grounded as possible, taking sun breaks throughout the day, and blocking blue light and artificial light at night. When you join up, you'll get access to four hours of lessons on how to make key circadian changes, as well as weekly live Q&As. If this is something that you're interested in, then join up today because we start on June the 1st. And if you need some basic equipment, including blue blocking glasses and circadian-friendly lighting, then use my code DRMAX on bondcharge.com to grab all of these products. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Laszlo Boros. He is a former professor of pediatrics at UCLA, a research scientist and world expert on deuteronomics. Deuteronomics refers to the study of deuterium, the heavy isotope of hydrogen, and how it interacts with biological systems. This is an almost two-hour technical interview in which we delve deeply into the role of deuterium in causing metabolic disease and the deposition of visceral fat. Dr. Boris takes us down to the level of the mitochondrion and explains exactly how foods enriched in deuterium, such as processed carbs and seed oils, contribute to metabolic dysfunction by wrecking the ATPase nanomotors in the inner mitochondrial membrane. While we talk a lot about mechanisms, we also discuss some practical steps. So you'll also find out why fully grass-fed beef fat is the optimal human energy source. This is a topic that I continue to learn more about, but based on the information that Dr. Boros and previous guests, Dr. Jack Cruz and Sarah Pugh, have presented, it makes a very strong case that metabolic disease is a problem of excess deuterium. Carnivore, low-carb, and a seasonal ancestral diet are effective in reversing obesity, insulin resistance, diabetes, and all these metabolic diseases precisely because they are low deuterium diets. So let me know what you think about this and hope you enjoyed the show. Dr. Laszlo Boros, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting. So uh, 
I am a family medicine uh, doctor, and I'm interested, amongst other things, in how we can prevent uh, metabolic diseases like obesity, like type 2 diabetes, fatty liver, all these kind of things. And your research and your perspectives using deuterium are fascinating because I think it, it can offer us a lot in terms of insight into these problems. But maybe because this is such a niche topic and it is sometimes quite technical, I think it's worth starting from the very beginning and in terms of explaining people what deuterium is before we even go down the, the, the rabbit hole of clinical implications. Sure. Thank you again. So um, uh, deuterium is practically the SUV in your driveway or in your garage where you can't fit your passenger car any longer. So it's hydrogen, and that's the beginning of this whole story. Carbon and oxygen make up the living organisms as the most common atoms or elements. Hydrogen is the smallest of all, and it helps to transfer energy and also provide chemical bonds between oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen and sulfur and so on. But the most common ones are carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. And hydrogen is the ping pong ball that oxygen and carbon is playing a ping pong game. In the meantime, obviously, photosynthesis and biological oxidation are connected uh, to hydrogen itself. and uh, uh, practically, deuterium is the uh, heavy or the large uh, medicine ball in the baseball game, in the sense that so practically it's a <clears throat> heavy hydrogen. Hydrogen, the nucleus of hydrogen is a is a proton. It's made of a by a proton, and there's an electron spinning around it. And the deuterons or deuterium is a proton and a neutron and an electron, meaning that the nucleus of the deuteron is uh, twice as heavy and twice as large as the proton, and chemically behaves different, meaning that in chemical bonds, it requires 8 to 15 times more energy to remove, to remove that uh, where hydrogen would be placed. If it's replaced by deuterium, then the chemical behavior of the molecule is dramatically different. Uh, involving metabolism and so on. Uh, <clears throat> more importantly, deuterium get, can get into mitochondria and ATP synthase nanomotors where, where they actually behave like a, a bull in a china store or elephant in a china store. Practically, they break these very delicate moving proteins and nanomotors. And for that matter, um, there are going to be a lack of uh, uh, TCA cycle or Krebs Sandier D cycle metabolism, meaning that there's going to be a molecular or metabolic, metabolic crowding. And because the lack of, of proper, uh, mitochondrial function to burn fuel completely, there's going to be a buildup of uh, various organic molecules, including fatty acids, glucose, and so on. And uh, metabolic diseases develop, uh, and based on the specific tissue presentation, human diseases develop depending on what kind of metabolic uh, and how severe the metabolic defect is or how damaged the mitochondria are and their nanomotors because of deuterium effect, which is, again, twice as heavy and twice as large when we look at its nucleus than hydrogen is. 
And hydrogen is the most common element in our system, in our body, and and it works and it performs most of the work as far as energy transfers and structural chemical bonds. And replacing hydrogen with deuterium has major effects on protein structure, protein movements, and so on, and the activity of metabolic enzymes. And the result of all of these, uh, we developed uh, various diseases, disease processes that you have to handle in your in your family practice. Yeah, thank, thanks for that explanation. And just to zoom out and really keep a big picture before we delve into the weeds, the mitochondria, for those who are listening, are these little organelles inside uh, almost all your cells that are the sites of energy production in, in the cell. And what um, Dr. Lazo was talking about is that um, these mitochondria take energy inputs in the form of, of food, um, and they also receive, the cytochromes can also receive light frequencies, and they um, tunnel electrons um, from the food and use it to pump these hydrogens against up a, a gradient. So I mean, imagine pumping water uphill, and then at that fifth, uh, the fifth cytochrome of that electron transport chain, they're supposed to flow down this gradient, like the water's supposed to flow down a hill um, and run through this nanomotor and then allow us to make uh, ATP from ADP. But what Dr. Boris just explained to you is that if we use this heavy isotope of hydrogen instead of H+, if we use a deuterium, then that basically wrecks the, the ability of that nanomotor to spin efficiently. And I talked to Dr. Stephanie Seneff, and um, I, I like to, someone used the analogy of of, uh, of a fat kid going down a slippery slide, you know, at a water park and kind of getting stuck in the middle. But um, it's really more than that, because as, you, as you've talked about it, it's, it's not only blocking the nanomotor from spinning and therefore preventing us from, develop, from uh, operating efficiently, but it's actually destroying the, the ATPase. Is that correct? That's right. And it's not only a destruction, but it's also a permanent chemical bond of these proton spinning uh, amino acids. That means it's, it's, it's irreparable uh, as far as uh, the damage is delivered. And uh, once these nanomotors stop functioning, we cannot transfer protons from carbons to oxygen. And if that occurs, then our energy per cellular level energy production system is diminished practically and those cells become a target of uh, apoptosis or or inflammation for that matter and those cells because of cytochrome c which is part of the electron transport chain signal for self-destruction simply that's what the organ disease or organ uh, damage and chronic disease would actually line up is uh, practically dying cells replaced by fibrotic tissue or inflammatory tissues and so on. And because of the lack of organ function or the lack of your cellular functions that help these organs to perform certain functions that could be transport of certain metabolites, it could be storage of certain uh, organic materials, fatty acids, glucose, glycogen, and so on. These cells are... <coughs> missing their functions, these cells are replaced by fibrotic or, or inflammatory tissues, and then organ damage sets in and chronic diseases develop practically. Yes, and, and I, I really like that framing because it gives us a, a framework of understanding how things going wrong at the basically submolecular level can end up 
manifesting as a disease in in the entire organism. And I think it's a great place to make a quick mention of Dr. Doug Wallace and his basically theory of the bio the mitochondrial bioenergetic etiology of disease, which is exactly what you're talking about. Um, and Dr. Doug Wallace has made the point that um, the the mitochondrial dysfunction, um, when that when that happens, when the mitochondria start failing, the energy output of the cell obviously fails. It, the cell's ability to do its job, whether that's contract as a cardiomyocyte, whether that's um, to make insulin as a pancreatic beta cell, whether that's to to transmit um, a signal as a neuron in the brain, that that fails when the mitochondria inside the cell start start failing. So um, it's interesting because. When that mitochondrial efficiency drops, then things like DNA repair, the mitochondrial DNA repair, all these processes start um, impeding. And then you get this this uh, kind of feedwork or this process, this cycle that leads to um, that leads to apoptosis and, and basically failure of the cell. Are you are you familiar with Dr. Wallace's work? Have you um, are you up to speed with that? I I did hear about um, many of these efforts. The the new way of looking at energy production in mitochondria is not only ATP synthesis. Uh, deuteronomics or the study of deuterium in mitochondria is uh, changing every day simply because there's so much data and information coming in. And right now what we are working on is extending the energy production scenarios in mitochondria, not only looking at ATP, but the actual the, the actual formation of metabolic water, which is how oxygen and, and hydrogen come together after the, these nanomotors are powered. Now, protons are necessary for water formation uh, from food, and uh, the, the result of this is 280 kilojoule per mole energy in the form of heat when metabolic water is formed in the mitochondria. In the meantime, there's an additional 20 to 30 kilojoule per mole uh, energy produced in the form of ADP, ATP uh, synthesis, but practically the majority of heat energy that is produced in mitochondria is because of the electron transport chain activating oxygen and the proton that falls into the mitochondrial matrix, matrix after powering these nanomotors and this is what we call the explosive gas when oxygen and hydrogen joins together, uh, but it's very controlled and very precisely controlled in the mitochondrial matrix to the electron transport chain and those those uh, uh, proteins or or cytochrome uh, uh, enzymes. Practically, it's a very delicate, controlled, highly uh, energy yielding process by producing metabolic water and also by producing ATP in the process. And they all depend on the smooth uh, work of these nanomotors because those are the ones that are able to transfer from the intermembrane space of the mitochondria, the protons, into the mitochondrial matrix. The metabolic water is formed. And in the meantime, the, the Krebs-Sandiogi cycle is absorbing or recycling this metabolic water to fum fumarate hydratase and, and citrate synthase and so on. So it's practically physics connected with biochemistry tunneling, which means that uh, one of the uh, nuclear uh, atomic events linked with biochemical reactions. So it's, it's it practically covers all uh, that is related to what we know, quantum physics and electromagnetic radiations and and biochemistry. And this is why so many people 
work together on these scenarios simply because these include and involve all major parts of physics and biology as we know today. Yeah, and and for the for the listeners who have followed my work up till now, we explored these concepts in the first with my first instance with my series with Dr. Jack Cruz. And um essentially what how he described what is going on in the mitochondria, uh, oxidative phosphorylation, is the opposite of uh, photosynthesis. And this idea that, um, you know, it's like a spider on a mirror doing push-ups. Um, it's this process that w- what's happening in the mitochondria is just a reversal of, of the photosynthetic process. And the output of what we've described is obviously ATP, but it's it's more than that. It's carbon dioxide and it's this metabolic water. Um, the, the unique idea of the metabolic water is that it's deuterium depleted. I think that is a, the key point and um, summarizing what we've or talked about in the first set. Deuterium free. Yeah, it's got no yeah, deuterium in it. Um, what we desire is that the outside is 105, 155 ppm, and the most inner part of your cells are deuterium-free, and the gradient goes in and between through various filtering biochemical mechanisms, and this is what practically biology or medicine should be uh, as far as understanding very basic principles and concepts in energy production for that matter. But we, we prefer the least amount of deuterium in, in mitochondria to to prevent diseases, disease processes. Yeah, and uh, it's it's interesting because I I guess we previewed in the first ten minutes. We the biology has evolved very very specifically to preclude deuterium from the whole process of energy generation. I think that that's that's the point that you've made so far. Um, if if people can understand that concept, is that. What, to, for the cell to operate optimally, we don't want this heavy hydrogen um, in the whole process. And whether we use the analogy of the, the the SUV trying to fit into a small garage, whether we use the analogy of the the, the eight ball, I, I heard you use that analogy there, the cue ball, the big eight ball that doesn't fit down the hole, um, whatever analogy you want to use. And um, I think the key takeaway point for the first part of this interview is that um, biology doesn't like deuterium. And even though deuterium is present naturally in 155 parts per million in, in the ocean and in the environment, um, there's been specific reasons why we have evolved uh, to not have deuterium inside the, the inner mitochondrial matrix. That's right. And, and uh, we need to consider deuterium as a structural element. So some structural proteins like collagen, proline, deuterated prolines are very important for animals that live in harsh uh, conditions, under harsh conditions and environments. So in structural proteins, and this is why we now talk about the regulation of deuterium, deuterium has no place in moving proteins, energy production or enzyme reactions and so on, especially when tunneling comes into the picture. Now, in structural proteins, in very small amounts, in certain amino acids, uh, deuterium is a very important uh, stabilizing element. And uh, for that matter, uh, it can be high as as high as as, uh, 315 parts per million in uh, seal um, collagen simply because those animals have to dive and come up at uh, very high speed and they have to escape from predators and so on. So their structural element, their skeletal elements and their collagen have to be modified chemically to these um, demands. So now we actually use energy 
energy production uh, covering mitochondrial and peroxisomal metabolism and how they interrelate to one another. That's a new aspect of, of deuterium research. And we may cover this um, in, in, in this conversation uh, based on, on how deep you want to dig in to this process. And um, for the structural elements of, of our body, um, we need to regulate deuterium according to the, um, to the need of how stable and how structurally durable those elements need to be. So we are looking at in biological samples from zero parts per million deuterium, which is the mitochondrial matrix, up to 315 parts per million, which is the collagen proline of, of uh, under challenging uh, uh, living conditions and environment. So in and between, there's this human deuteronomics project where we actually use these various a wide range deuterium distributions to explain phenotype and to explain disease processes because what we believe is human disease is a tissue specific presentation of a deuterium overload or, or a deuterium dysregulation process. Yeah, and, and if we think about the two major causes of human chronic diseases, it's uh, neurodegeneration like dementias and Parkinson's disease and uh, cardiovascular disease, so heart failure, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And I don't think it was, it's no uh, surprise or it works, it makes sense because these two tissues are some of the most uh, mitochondrial rich uh, tissues in, in the bo- organs in the body. And so, it, you know, the heart having between three and 5,000 mitochondria in every cardiomyocyte. So um, it makes sense that if um, we're getting failure of, mitochondria in those organs then that that's that in a long long enough time frame is going to manifest um as as disease I, I want you to just talk a couple more instances of the physiological role of deuterium in the body um so we've we've already established that it can't be in moving parts in energy generation inside the mitochondria but it might be useful and it is useful in structural components like collagen what is there an in-between here where the body is also using deuterium physiologically um, well, it depends on the species and the challenging conditions. Um, and this is actually a paper from the Karolinska Institute by Dr. Roman Zubarev, who measured deuterium in seal and pellegrine falcons uh, and swan collagen. And he found a huge variation based on how challenging these animals live their everyday lives. The swan which just kind of swims around the lakes and, you know, eats some, some, some uh, plants, uh, they have 155 ppm in their collagens. Obviously, their life is not very demanding or challenging uh, compared to seals and pellegrine falcons. The pellegrine falcons, they come down at 300, 400 kilometers per hour, and they have to slow down. Uh, using their wings in the last 40, 50 meters of their, of their dive. So that actually puts their wings under extreme friction forces and so on. So they have to develop a collagen, a protein that actually helps their bone structure to do, to, to deal with this very demanding, uh, frictional force. To be able to do that, it takes, uh, deuterium up 
to the range of 300 parts per million. In the meantime, these animals, because they fly so fast and they have to uh, climb so fast to do before these dives, their muscles have to be deuterium-free for that matter, their nanomodules, meaning that their glycolysis is controlling um, food-based deuterium to get into metabolic or cytoplasmic water through isomerase reactions. These are actually glycolysis-related enzyme reactions where actually deuterium discrimination effect and this discriminated deuterium can be loaded in some other parts of the body or uh, biochemical reactions, uh, for example, proline synthesis and hydroxyproline synthesis, which will make these uh, collagen uh, proteins, and it's unique to this protein, structural protein, and cancer cells like to use this hydro uh, deuterated proline as well. So this is why the cancer, the malignant tissue stroma is, when you touch it, you probably in medical school, you had to rotate in surgery, oncological surgery, surgical units, and you can actually tell by touching tumors that they are almost like bone or cartilage uh, type tissues. And uh, that's because they accumulate deuterium in their stroma and in, and in their uh, structural proteins. So it seems that uh, knowing deuterium or being aware of how deuterium is distributed among species and also among tissues, you can actually describe a, a, a very critical biological behavior type of, of, of uh, situations, and, and you can argue based on deuterium content what to expect from that particular tissue, how to operate in our, in our body. That's a fascinating uh, point. I want to just make two quick points. Um, one is that the body is, or if you look at the TCA cycle, and and for anyone who's taken chemistry, whether that was in school or in university, there's a, a long list of enzymatic steps that uh, are, are involved in the whole process. And it seems to me, and what you've talked about in your lectures, is that the reason for those steps is because the body is selecting for uh, proteum over deuterium um, in terms of the, the 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 those enzymatic reactions. So is that the is that the chief reason why there are so many enzymatic steps? Is it solely to select against deuterium in in the mitochondria? Uh, that, that's correct. I I actually gave talks about this at UCL back in like 2017 and 18, talking about uh, glycolysis being a deuterium scavenging mechanism, a deuterium sorting mechanism through water exchange reactions and proton exchange reactions uh, from cytoplasmic water, which should be uh, diluted in by matrix water to be low in deuterium. So you can actually exchange deuterium between compartments of your cells. And that's right. Uh, glucose, for example, has 12 hydrogens and glycolysis have 10 reactions. And one of those reactions, enolase, takes a whole water molecule out of, of glucose. So practically what glycolysis does, it checks every hydrogen in a glucose molecule and replaces it with cytoplasmic waters, protons, to make sure that there is no deuterium can actually enter the mitochondria as using glucose as a Trojan horse. So practically it's a disassembly of the Trojan horse to see what's inside and then reassembling it 
to, to take it to the mitochondria. And the mitochondria is hydrating the precursors, which is pyruvate and acetyl coenzyme A, and it adds metabolic water through citrate synthase, through um, aconitase, and, and uh, through um, uh, fumarate hydratase as the water consuming reactions. But in reality, every 99.9% of every uh, enzyme reaction in our body uses water as the chemical solvent or water protons to perform that particular reaction. So every reaction in glycolysis and every reaction, uh, nine reactions of the uh, krebs yodi cycle or the TCA cycle use water for that matter. So water deuterium content and water de- depleted, um, uh, deuterium depleted water in chemical reactions is, is a key for those reactions to operate. So even though the molecule itself does not have or not necessarily deuterated, if the water of our system is deuterated, then those reactions also, again, slow down. So uh, deuterium goes far uh, farther than we would expect just uh, simply looking at um, uh, exchange reactions. It it is actually uh, kind of the medium or the the chemical solvents, water, and that's why our body is made up so much of so much water because we have to provide a solvent base for all these medic, uh, chemical reactions, biochemical reactions, and if those are not in a deuterium or low deuterium um, environment, depleted or low deuterium environment or deuterium-free environment, if we talk about the matrix, those can cause uh, chronic diseases um, and they can actually, if it's food-based, uh, the deuterium overload, then it can actually cause epidemics of chronic diseases in populations that consume the kind of the bad uh, food or diet. Yes, and uh, I use this analogy with Dr. Senef is the, the fascinating way that the body has evolved this checking process, which you've just described. It's almost it's almost like um you know you're burning a furnace with timber, um but you you you've evolved this intricate inspection process of the logs and unless the log is perfect you know the body is going to like discard that and it's not going to allow that log to go down and get burnt in the furnace because it's that important to the the function of the factory which is um the mitochondria that um mitochondrion is that 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 those logs are you know just the right thing if it's got a branch sticking out the wrong way which is an analogy for deuterium then it's like no sorry um we, we we don't want that the it's a great point sorry go on and this is very important from the tunneling point of view because in our system, everything happens by tunnel, meaning that those very tight enzymatic reaction compartments, they only can achieve chemical reaction to occur at actually such speed if actually those protons are pushed around physically by other protons. And if there's a deuterium in between, if there's a log that stands out, and different, like as it's supposed to, it can actually stop the whole process. Yeah, and that's a great place to talk about fats because glycolysis is a, is a process of checking these carbohydrates um, for for deuterons. But what what is unique about the the fatty acid molecules that make them problematic for this process? Uh, fatty acids are produced from citric acid, which are formed uh, which are formed in mitochondria, so they are low in deuterium. That's why fatty acids don't have to go through glycolysis because 
our cells expect fatty acids to be low in deuterium. So for oxidation, they are appropriate, meaning that they can be taken into the mitochondria, into the cell and into the mitochondria to these carnitine transport proteins without checking every proton or hydrogen in those molecules if those are deuterium or not. Or you don't have to replace them with your metabolic waters, uh, low deuterium uh, protons. So practically fatty acids, because nature or the creator, I like to use both to kind of help everybody to imagine how this system work. Uh, practically, they um, it's designed or these reactions are designed to kind of work with a very efficient, very effective deuterium depleting mechanism when it's necessary. Yet, if there's a perfect fuel for that matter, it's animal-based, uh, grass-fed, uh, carnivore-style um, animal saturated long chain fatty acid, which is very low in deuterium, uh, in the range of 110 ppm compared to 155 of glucose. That's safe to use for both peroxisomes and mitochondria. And for that matter, your body has very quick access, access to those because those have, don't have to be checked. They are actually in the 100 meter sprint run. They just run. There are no blockages or there's no gaze that they have to hump over. And this is why those are very efficient fuels. Um, saturated animal fat, grass-fed animal fat is so efficient fuel for our cells and for our mitochondria because those are low in deuterium. And um, your cells are able to scavenge uh, that smaller amount of deuterium using uh, the urea cycle, using uh, various water exchange reactions in the mitochondrial, in the TCA cycle, and so on. So our biochemistry is designed uh, based on uh, deuterium intake and deuterium scavenging and also efficiency uh, based on oxygen availability and oxygen transport. So practically is a stoichiometric method simply just to deal with the right appropriate balance of these uh, uh, systems and mechanisms that include food, water, or nutrients that we take in, oxygen availability, uh, and uh, mitochondrial processes to actually burn and make these uh, exchange reactions, atomic reactions efficient with, uh, without uh, the participation of, of deuterium itself. So it's practically the key to health to understand these processes, and it's the key to 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 uh, manage uh, chronic disease epidemics and so on, and to treat patients individually using uh, naturopathic or or natural approaches that actually limit the tumor intake through the appropriate food incorporation. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you brought up the the grass fed meat and and fat, and we'll actually talk about that a bit later. I'll just I'll just make a quick flag. And seed oils, which are polyunsaturated fatty acids rich in uh, fatty acids like linoleic acid, um, are they are they deuterium enriched? At uh, unsaturated bonds, they are very low in deuterium based on where they are from, if they are actually natural or or industrial source. Uh, they could have very different variations or very different levels of, of deuterium. If, if those are plant-based and uh, seed oil, and those are not industrial GMO 
or fertilizer or glyphosate-treated plants. Uh, naturally, those could be for certain species, those could be uh, not for humans, but for certain species, those could be useful uh, substrates. Their microbiome have to be adopted to the, to the uh, food that they consume. Uh, it can be even fruit-based in certain birds. Uh, that's when they have a very high turnover of, of uh, um, bio, microbiome for that matter. But, uh, and they, let's say this way, they poop a lot, but practically in, as far as humans are concerned, we are designed to eat, um, animal fat, uh, saturated long chain fatty acids, uh, preferentially coming from bone marrow. Um, this is what we believe the prehistoric, uh, man anthropologically, um, uh, started consuming, um, uh, brain and bone marrow of animals' carcasses that were left behind by predators because they had tools to break through uh, the bony uh, skeletal structures. So our species or our um, uh, societies, uh, going back to caveman's time, prehistoric time, were all dependent on this saturated, low-deuterium, uh, animal-based uh, grass-fed uh, uh, fat source. This is how our mitochondria adopted to the uh, food and, and uh, environment, uh, what prehistoric men lived in and the cavemen lived in. It's only since the industrial agricultural processes set in is when chronic diseases occurred, as we know uh, now, and and more food items are replaced on the shelf uh, by processed industrial food items, uh, more severe these chronic disease epidemics are. Yeah, great. And and we'll 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 come back to that because I I want to delve into that a bit a bit deeper. Before we finish on this idea of physiological and um partitioning of deuterium in the body, and um, you've mentioned that in, in your slides that deuterium is present in the serum um at around around twelve millimoles, which is uh, is higher than the other uh ions in the body. So is the body specifically keeping deuterium there or what, explain to us um, the role of, of deuterium in, specifically in, in the blood? Uh, actually, it's a lot higher um, because if you look at uh, potassium, eucassium, or other inorganic elements, um, those are actually uh, one-tenth or one-fifth of, of the de concentration of deuterium. Deuterium is very common and very abundant in, our, in circulation simply because there are so many water and hydrogen-based uh, uh, molecules circulating. And practically, this is how our body gets rid of deuterium through circulation and kidney function, urine, saliva, sweat, and uh, uh, poop, um, uh, and so on. So practically, uh, our plasma is where the first uh, yeah, a significant deuterium exchange occurs in red blood cells, which use glycolysis to produce lactic acid. And in the meantime, they keep these NADP molecules reduced because they have to overcome the effect of oxygen. So they have to have reducing equivalents. So this glycolysis that takes place in, in red blood cells uh, 
very high flux provides lactic acid with hydrogen that gets into the liver and through the core cycle. It's re- re- returned as glucose, but in athletes, there's a vermicella bacteria that starts using this hydrotium lactic acid to produce propionic acid, which is a ketone body. It's a low deuterium containing ketone body, which can actually um, replace the core cycle to deplete deuterium very efficiently. And uh, because of the high water content of the plasma, which is 99 point above percent, um, deuterium matches practically your body's um, uh, ability to deplete deuterium by getting rid of through circulation of uh, deuterium, mostly by dissolved urea and um, or uric acid. So simply these are all part of a very complex biochemical process, but very simple biochemical process if we just talk about deuterium depletion and, and overcoming deuterium overloaded tissues. And it's definitely the most abundant inorganic element in our blood and it should be measured just like everything else or anything else in the in the plasma if you uh, go to a lab um, study or or a, or a clinical or diagnostic uh, um, panel of blood work then those inorganic elements are part of your history and that's how deuterium should be approached uh, to measure it in in blood and in other uh, fluid or liquids, for example, exhaled breath, um, which gives you a better idea of how much deuterium is returned from your tissues into the circulation. And um, by those ratios, you can tell how efficient your body is able to separate deuterium from from protons or proteum and uh, how to actually uh, keep your tissues or tissue level operations in the low deuterium range. That, that, that's interesting. And the usual reason in medicine why an assay isn't performed or a test isn't performed is because the mainstream clinician doesn't know what to do with it, uh, with the result. And we're, you know, the, the rule of, of, me- of one of the rules in medicine is don't order a test that you can't interpret. So, um, and, and a classic example of this is a fasting insulin level, which is a very, easy way to give an insight into someone's metabolic health and and the uh, higher fasting insulin level can give insight into the development of insulin resistance well well before um, the blood glucose level starts arranging but uh, i imagine that um, no one orders a serum deuterium because um, the implication of a high level is that we need to be going through a lifestyle change that you've previewed for us which is um, specifically uh, consuming foods that are, are, are low in deuterium. So uh, I'm guessing I've never ordered it, and I'd be interested in the in in the interpretation of it. But I, I'm guessing that if um, someone has a high serum deuterium, then that is just representing. Uh, is it correlating well to whole total body um, deuterium level, and that implies that they need to be doing these lifestyle measures? Uh, yeah, it's in and between. It's what you consume, as far as food is concerned, how healthy your microbiome is or what kind of microbiome components or composition you have, and also your age, your sleeping patterns, your ketosis versus glucosis, um, your daily activities, um, and also your underlying disease processes, they all impact on on blood deuterium levels. So for 
just to dig out exactly how those relate to diseases, you also want to do a what we call the organic acid test from urine, where you can actually check on the TCA cycle intermediates to see how your mitochondrial branch out, uh, the TCA, the Sanjuri Krebs cycle, high branches out of organic acids, uh, meaning that you can interpret your data based on uh, mitochondrial functions as far as deuterium levels are concerned. And then you would ask the patient what kind of food, what's the source, what they eat, where they get their food, how much water they drink. And um, from from these components, if you do this um, with some biochemical knowledge, then you can kind of uh, pinpoint to, 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 to various problems in lifestyle consumption of certain food items, the sources, and uh, age-related, sleep-related, and lifestyle-related uh, issues. So eventually you can, and you would be able to interpret the data very efficiently and with specifics of how and what kind of diseases to expect and how to overcome those. And usually uh, when I get questions about what deuterium levels they should um, or a patient should reach, um, I usually start by just simply asking them of, of what their nutritional and what their source is, because usually that's the first um, obstacle that you have to overcome of how to deal with certain um, lifestyle and, and, and food-related issues to prevent uh, chronic diseases. and. Uh, to treat efficiently chronic diseases and eventually to provide a better um, life expectancy and also a better life quality for those patients, especially obesity, yeah. diabetes, and cancer. Yeah, great. And, and let's let's pivot now and talk about this idea of metabolic disease because essentially, um, as far as I'm uh, as I'm con- conceive it, uh, so many of the preventable conditions that are putting people in nursing homes. Um, Stem from metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance, um, and and they're they're all tissue specific manifestations. Um, whether that's you know cardiovascular disease, whether it is dementia, whether all, all these problems come come down on a um, hormonal level to to uh, insulin resistance, um, but on a mitochondrial level, it's dysfunctional mitochondria. So, um, you know, I, I like to look at things like the presence of ectopic fat or visceral fat um, that is even predating or, or anteceding the development of, you know, a raised fasting insulin. So um, I, I want to ask you about a, a critical thing that's been um, on my mind, which is, is the presence of ectopic fat, which uh, I guess there's spilling over of energy outside um, physiological white adipose depots, is that a fundamentally a problem of excess deuterium? Uh, yes. Um, and it becomes more clear if you think about this process, what we call metabolite or molecular crowding. Because any particular accumulation process, amylin, uh, uh, you know, amyloidosis, glucose, uh, fat, they all indicate a problem with complete substrate oxidation where the products are carbon dioxide, water, and energy. This is what your Formula One 
race car engine does. It burns fuel very efficiently at high RPM, delivering incredible force. For that, you have to tweet in and very precisely, you have to kind of um, adjust all the intake, all the exhaust parts, and, and, and very efficiently, you have to bring it into a um, highly precisely calculated manner that your body can actually do if everything works fine, meaning that if there's ignition and there's uh, sufficient exhaustion, you can actually load or or you can actually perform in those mitochondria more efficiently, much more efficiently if your deuterium is low, if your nanomotors are spinning at high rotation, your metabolic water formation efficient, your TC cycle is able to produce carbon dioxide, which is the the optimal gas form of any uh, burning or biological oxidation process. If this uh, set of reactions is blocked anywhere, that could be uh, mitochondria, that could be uh, mitochondrial nanomotors, that could be oxygen delivery, that could be the electron transport chain, not enough light, not enough uh, uh, natural light, uh, not enough um, exposure to to red light for that matter, uh, you actually diminish these mitochondrial functions so there is no complete uh, substrate oxidation which results in carbon dioxide that you can just kind of exhaust like in a in a in a in an in an exhaust pipe through your breath practically you can exhale if these uh, steps or if these reactions are diminished, then metabolic crowding or metabolic crowding, crowding steps in and you have to store those molecules until they break down at a certain body compartment. It could be visceral fat, it could be composite fat, it could be f- fat tissue itself, it could be excessive glycogen, it could be excessive protein, of, of any sort based on, on tissue specifics, but it's practically a part of a inefficient, complete biological oxidation system where you have to, have to store molecules instead of burning them completely. And once that's set in, then you start at tissue levels, you start building up fat that compromises tissue tissue functions, oxygen delivery, blood flow, circulation, so on. So the cirrhosis is practically um, just uh, stepping in in every chronic disease where you deal with this metabolic crowding. And the truth is we don't need glucose. Uh, we don't need carbohydrates. Um, uh, our body is designed, our liver is designed to produce carbohydrates from glycerol of fat, meaning that it's a gluconeogenic precursor. So provided that you eat enough fat, animal fat, which is not the same as fatty acids, fat is compo- composed of a glycerol where all these glycerol is a three-carbon molecule and each of those can have uh, uh, fatty acids attached to them. These are what we call triglycerides or phospholipids if there's one phosphate and two fatty acids. And this is how your liver exchanges fatty acids with adipose tissue and heart muscle, for example. The, 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 the most efficient way of delivering energy is in this form of this fat because it's very saturated with hydrogen. A fat 
a carbon hydrocarbon is very different from a car from a um, um, a a, um, a glucose molecule, which is a a uh, six carbons mixed with six six water molecules. So hydrocarbons are carbons and hydrogen. Uh, carbohydrates are carbons and water. So practically, if you look at a hydrocarbon, it has twice as many almost hydrogens compared to the to the same amount of carbons that they carry. And for that matter, they are much more efficient and much more suited fuel source for metabolic water formation, which is oxygen and hydrogen, and also for ATP synthesis, which needs these protons to come into the mitochondrial matrix. And uh, those are the most efficient low-deuterium substrates to deliver this, this hydrogen protons and not deuterons to the mitochondria. So hydrocarbon and carbohydrates are very different how they behave in in our systems. Uh, hydrocarbon and carbohydrates have very different deuterium contents simply because the way they are made uh, in nature. Again, um, uh, photosynthesis and uh, uh, <clears throat> biological oxidation are the reverse or opposite processes in a sense that, but they all fulfill the same biological role is practically to capture the energy of sunlight and deliver it to um, uh, um, uh, species that are chemotrophic or heterotrophic um, uh, species. And I gave these talks uh, uh, based on basic biochemical or biochemistry um, uh, teaching at UCLA, and Jack Roosh took some of that in his arguments, but practically it's a biochemical scenario when we look at these reactions, and there are actually roles of uh, electromagnetic radiations in the form of light and so on, which actually interact, interact with these uh, electron transport uh, chain proteins, and also what's very important is that <clears throat> there's a a mitochondrial process, what we call these nanoconfinement and proton destabilization processes, which also produce energy uh, against the zero-point energy uh, scales. We actually building up these energy-producing uh, uh, scenarios just to understand um, human energy production or, or eukaryote cell energy production in general. Now we are actually linking this with the uh, obligatory fatty acid synthesize, uh, fatty acid uh, oxidizing or fatty acid modifying cell organelle, what we call peroxisomes. And the result is hydrogen peroxide, which can be by catalase turned into um, uh, uh, metabolic water. And sleep is very important because during sleep, you slow down oxygen delivery. And that's when molecular oxygen O2 steps in. And this is uh, how you supply your uh, peroxisome with uh, oxygen. And the breathing or the slow breathing during sleep serves this process of deuterium depletion um, um, from fat. And the result is hydrogen peroxide, which produces um, uh, metabolic water in mitochondria uh, with the use of catalase. But practically, sleep is just to go into a ketosis, a fat-burning state, without eating anything. The problem is 
during daytime, if you get hungry, you go to the freezer, you open the door, and you start eating all kinds of stuff. If you sleep, you actually allow your, with low oxygen tension, simply because your breathing slows down, these uh, peroxisomes to kick in, even though they don't produce much energy, they produce <clears throat> low lithium hydrogen peroxide, which can be taken to mitochondria to produce um, low lithium metabolic water from there. And this process is so critical and so important that, for example, if you want to climb to the top of the Mount Everest, uh, <clears throat> uh, if you want to uh, climb to the to the top of the Himalaya without supplementary oxygen, you have to be nutritional grass-fed ketosis. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. So practically, as it, as it comes to not only chronic disease, but also human performance or extreme challenges in that matter, uh, <clears throat> these, these systems, the proxisomal, the mitochondrial, the proton destabilization, the light effects, the heat production, these are all interconnected in a very simple way, and that's practically uh, carbohydrates <clears throat> and hydrocarbons behave, behave differently as far as their energy and deuterium load. So practically, you want to operate under nutritional and metabolic ketosis on low deuterium saturated animal fat, and from then on, you can actually metabolically and energetically, you can challenge your system. Um, and you will be able to perform and you will be able to re reverse uh, certain disease processes, uh, mostly chronic metabolic diseases, simply because now your, now your mitochondria is able to completely uh, exhaust those stored uh, fatty acids, proteins, uh, carbohydrates, whatever those are, because of you, you actually... Um, treated metabolic crowding at the cellular level uh, with the appropriate uh, low deuterium uh, high energy substrate delivery in the form of saturated grass-fed animal fat, and that's key to health. Uh, I, I'm blown away, Laszlo. This is uh, absolutely amazing. I think you're really helping me put together a whole bunch of pieces in my head uh, around the, the pathogenesis of metabolic dysfunction. Um, let me go through a couple of those things that you said in in turn because you, you there was so much um gold in, in what you've just said um essentially when the the state of the art in terms of most of the metabolic clinicians that that and uh kind of thought leaders on this topic is that metabolic dysfunction is starts in dysfunction of the adipocyte and then the adipocyte reaches a personal fat threshold um it can no longer store substrates in there so these spill out into you know ectopic fat deposits whether that's hepatosteatosis fat in the liver whether that's you know white adipose but in 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 an ectopic depot such as the the the, the viscera in the abdomen, um, or even within the muscle, another form of ectopic de fat deposit. But I, I was never satisfied by that explanation, and it didn't help me um, understand pieces of evidence like uh, circadian disruption, which is this idea that. And there was a recent, there was a study done where they had two groups of mice. They fed them the exact same diet, but one had a circadian disrupted shift work uh, light environment, and that group of mice developed. Uh, 
fibrotic and inflammatory uh, adipose tissues, expansion of, of, of their visceral and subcutaneous adipose depots, and they developed uh, insulin resistance. So um, th- there's obviously more factors at play than what we're eating in terms of developing or exceeding this personal fat threshold, and then we're developing um, ectopic fat deposits and then on the way to insulin resistance and then type 2 diabetes and the rest. But what you just described is that it's a backup of substrate. It's incomplete uh, um, oxidation or incomplete combustion of these substrates that is that is therefore being um, t- deposited or built up in different organs. And you know any other um, metabolic doctor that you talk to, um, they, they'll, they'll make the note that certain patients can will manifest metabolic disease in different ways. And some get, um, some will get, uh, will, will only have the tiniest bit of visceral fat, but they'll be floridly type two diabetic. Others will have massive expansion of their subcutaneous fat um, and be metabolically fine. Others will get hypertension and get kidney specific um, manifestations. So it's it's all a, a massive mm. spectrum. But what you're helping me understand is that um, w- this is a fundamental mitochondrial problem and a backup of substrate, um, and and there's multiple different steps that things can go wrong, but. Um, you know, it, it's all kind of coming back to the mitochondrial function uh, in terms of of how things are and why things are going wrong. Yeah, so <clears throat> you, you need to think of like how you come to this plant when you're a baby, when you're a newborn. You have a 2.9 millimole per liter glucose and, and one millimole per liter beta-hydroxybutyrate. Uh, uh, that means you, you are born in ketosis. You're born in a metabolic ketosis, which is um, what you reach in the morning after a sleep as well. So you're, you come to this planet in ketosis, you wake up in ketosis, in deuterium depleting ketosis, and the key to this is practically regulate oxygen intake and switch from mitochondria to proxosome, proxosome to mitochondria. Now the, it's more like a hybrid engine. The... A proxosome can only use and only modify fatty acids and uh, long-chain saturated fatty acids mostly. They produce acetate coenzyme A and they produce uh, using O2. So it's it's not uh, the red blood cells and, and, and hemoglobin that provides that O2, but it's dissolved uh, oxygen in your blood, which is available. It doesn't matter how slow you sleep. Actually, sleeping in deep, uh, and this is Wim Hof and some other methods, uh, then you can actually improve, increase uh, proxosomal beta oxidation. And for that matter, you can deplete deuterium and produce deuterium depleted metabolic water or hydrogen peroxide for for mitochondria. Uh, Once you wake up and you start eating, you eat a mixed diet. That means carbohydrates mix in. If you don't keep ketosis, meaning that um, you have to start dealing with deuterium some other ways, and this is like by glycosis is, is uh, uh, inserted, uh, embedded in the system. Practically during daytime, you can get rid of certain mana, cer- certain certain amount of deuterium. But if your deuterium intake is overloading these systems, the thresholds are overloaded, then you're going to start breaking mitochondria down. And once you start breaking mitochondria down, you're not able to completely oxidize uh, fatty acids, neither fatty acids nor carbohydrates or, 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 or amino acids. And the result of that is going to be a 
fat storage or 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 a, a metabolic metabolite crowding, and they all co- go down to the mitochondrial uh, uh, mechanisms and processes. It doesn't matter how and where the fat shows up or how extensive it is. Practically, they are all tissue-specific presentations of a deuterium overload and bro- broken mitochondria. And those can you, you can improve with food, nutrition, light, sleeping patterns, and so on. There's no supplements. There's no drug. There's, there's nothing you can actually fix this very complex system. You as a physician, you as a doctor who actually talk to the whole system as far as patients present their diseases, you have to look at them from the bottom up, meaning that you have to kind of deal with the mitochondria first and think over how you can improve the complete biological oxidation and the exhaustion of carbons from the whole system because that's practically in the form of carbon dioxide. That's the and metabolic water production. That's the whole idea be, behind a um, uh, responsive metabolism to challenges and physical exercise and so on, meaning that you are more kind of um, ready to take physical challenges, you are less prone to develop uh, chronic diseases, you are healthier in general, you can perform some other functions more efficiently, focusing on certain things, uh, uh, performing specific tasks. And what is really very important, which we observed over time, is how much water you drink, because water intake is also a source of deuterium. And this is the sneakiest part of deuterium because there is no carbons involved. So they actually get absorbed in your tissues and get diluted and get uh, um, uh, mixed with, with uh, cytoplasmic water. And... Uh, first through the circulation, then the interstitial tissue compartments, and then your cellular um, water. And in the meantime, uh, your brain will swell because the osmotic, lack of osmotic osmotic pressure. And for that matter, you develop these uh, kind of low-grade, if you drink too much water, with no salt excessively without thirst, you can develop a diabetes insipidus, which is, again, compromising your urea cycle, it compromising your antidiuretic, vasopressin antidiuretic hormone output, uh, because the pituitary gland produces sexual hormones, follicle-stimulating hormone, growth hormone, and thyroid-stimulating hormone, then you can actually kind of... um, disrupt all metabolic regulators and all metabolism that are linked so so well and so tightly together, you can disrupt these this whole process and and for that matter, you can you will start up um, you will start building up um, visceral fat, then when visceral fat storage spaces are not really sufficient to store that fat, then you you're gonna build up subcutaneous fat. And once that starts, you 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 carrying deposit depositing fat in in various um, other tissues, especially uh, when inflammatory cells kick in, because they sense that there's cells that signal to apoptosis or or degenerative processes set in. Inflammation inflammation is always part of it because a dying cell 
is also um, signaling for for phagocytites uh, f- uh, or or cells that will clear up the remnants of those of those uh, non-functioning mitochondrial bearing cells, and this whole process starts with is characterized with metabolic syndrome, various uh, uh, internal medical challenges like high blood pressure, high glucose, high f- uh, circulating fat is practically because you cannot exhaust all those. You cannot actually get rid of the carbon skeletons, the carbon sources. And um, the only way they can actually um, be stored is in the form of their most compact, let largest, I would say, chain length fatty acids. And that's how obesity, diabetes, and type 1, type 2 um, develop after all, because you lose metabolic sensitivity to oxygen and, and protons and mitochondrial processes. So after all, you just end up with a big stuffed uh, um, oxidative system that is not able to oxidize completely the substrates that are provided. I can't hear you right now. Sorry, that, and on a basic level, it's just um, the use the analogy of a of an engine. It's like the Formula One engine that needs the precise um, inputs and the price, precise tuning. The, the metabolic syndrome and metabolic dysfunction is just a complete mismatch of the the fuel sources and an inefficient engine that is is simply not working uh, yeah, properly. Just imagine, yeah, just imagine a Formula One race engine that has a very tight intake of air, oxygen. Oxygen is the only element they need, burning uh, practically hydrocarbons, which is a high-octane fuel. Octane is the eight-carbon fatty acids, fatty acid in your fuel, and higher that number is, more efficiently those fuels burn. And if you actually overload your cylinders with either oxygen or with fuel, this burning process will be insufficient and immediately you drop performance. Immediately yeah, and- you, you, you drop energy production. And what, what we call is the choking of the engine. We know how that works. We know oxygen limited environment. You have to adjust. If I'm, I'm not sure if you have flown airplanes, but if you are flying a Cessna and you reach a certain flying altitude, then you have to close your oxygen intake uh, or you have to close your fuel intake because your oxygen is less uh, pressurized in, in higher altitude. So you have to ad- ad- adopt, you have to adjust your h- hydrocarbon intake based on the oxygen availability. If you keep overstuffing your fuel, if you keep overstuffing the system with um, excess fuel and there's not enough oxygen and not enough mitochondrial processes to make these two to meet the hydrogen from food and the oxygen from air because you overstuff this then practically you break the engine and the perfor- first you see a decrease in performance and, and then you break the engines because those engines will stop after all so these have to be very tightly regulated and we have all the biochemical um, processes to regulate these very tightly, very efficiently for our mitochondria. But once these proportions are, uh, and the deuterium content of the fuel breaks the engine or the other way around, if there's too much fuel coming in, 
or there's less oxygen and these are not balanced, then there's going to be a, a major impact in your kind of ruining system. I love that. Thank you, Lazo. And, and I will make a quick point about how the light fits in because the near infrared light is being um, is helping the mitochondria produce melatonin, and melatonin is one of the most ancient and efficient antioxidant hormones. So, and um, we talked about the mitochondrial dysfunction because they're building up excessive reactive oxygen species. Well, if you're not getting if your circadian rhythms disrupted, if you're not getting infrared during the day to help make that melatonin, then you, you, the engine is again. It's you're not going to have enough oil, and then it, it's also going to break. Um, and and if you're not getting red light, which we know um, helps potentiate the efficiency of the fourth cytochrome, then again that's going to contribute to mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, and then red light is also um, being absorbed by mitochondrial water inside inside. So um, it's it's fascinatingly elegant how all these parts interact and when you don't get the light right or you don't get the food right um you, you know you, you need to bo- you need to get both right and i talk to patients about getting their light diet right and their food diet right and that's uh you know plenty of grass-fed uh, animal fat and plenty of um a regulated circadian rhythm but you, you basically need to do both of those so um uh, i i really like that the the point I'll, i just want to go back to this idea of ectopic fat as a deuterium depot, because I got in a Twitter war or Twitter argument with someone about this, uh, and they insisted that it is the ectopic fat is the actual depot for excess deuterium and a sign of of, of deuterium accumulation. Um, and a, a good friend and colleague, um, Dr. Sean O'Mara, is doing great work in terms of recommending people identify visceral fat, especially through MRI, um, which is showing them the problem. But biochemically, the actual mechanism is what we're talking about and this idea that deuterium is is building up and isn't being excreted properly. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, when, when you have deuterium imbalanced and you overload your system with deuterium, it will find a storage form uh, for itself, meaning that it's going to end up in um, uh, glycosis and water exchange products simply because if you label glucose with deuterium, it's going to end up inside of plasmic water. That side of plasmic water supplies all the biochemical reactions, including fatty acid synthase, which is an extra mitochondrial process, but the substrate, not only a coenzyme A, comes from citric acid. But if the, uh, if the, the uh, fatty acid synthesis process, which is a huge complex in um, in uh, in your uh, cytoplasma, if it has uh, uh, water or NADPH or reducing equivalent, which is loaded with deuterium, then your fat may become deuterium loaded, and those are again stored because of the lack of biological oxidation in in uh, ectopic fat. Uh, uh, tissues and fat accumulation. If you look at MRI images, on MRI images, those fat pads may look uh, darker because of the excess deuterium, because deuterium does not allow protons to move as freely and as quickly during MRI. So if it's a proton MRI, then you're going to see a um, lack of signal. And by comparing those signals, you can actually determine the deuterium content of, of, of your fat tissue, which you can actually do uh, using these image processing softwares. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was my exact next question, which is using MRI to 
to basically identify deuterium. So um, as far as I, I was aware, and I'm, I'm not a radiologist, and even the radiologists that I've talked to don't, don't seem to have any understanding of this, but um, there is deuterium-specific um, spectroscopy modes on um, MRI that involve, and as certain protocols, especially in neuro-oncology, involve ingesting deuterium-rich traces. But um, explain to us how we can identify deuterium-rich tissues um, maybe on standard MRI modes. Yeah, so uh, MRI is practically a magnetic field where actually you delocalize protons using a radio frequency. And uh, that means when they spin, because protons, they spin, they use, absorb electromagnetic um, energy to change their location. We call it nuclear uh, proton delocalization. And as they return, they emit the energy they absorbed during this changing of their positions, and that's what you detect in MRI. It's practically a proton moving or a proton movement uh, uh, measuring device, um, proton MRI, or magnetic resonance images. Um, now, if there is deuterium in your tissues, one single deuterium, for example, in ice water, can actually stop a thousand protons around it to resonate appropriately, meaning that uh, those protons are tight in their in their structures, meaning that they're unable to delocalize and they're unable to return and emit this energy. So in certain scan modes, uh, there's two kinds of scans. One is the uh, lattice and spin um, relaxation, and the other one is the spin-spin relaxation. Those are both affected by deuterium because deuterium does not allow protons to move as freely as as uh, uh, just simply just in proton environment. So you can see a darker or a diminished image. Now the problem with what you refer to is called deuterium metabolic imaging, is when they actually use a glucose molecule that has deuterium on it. And as it breaks down, certain products can be measured using uh, magnetic resonance uh, imaging or spectroscopy. The problem with labeling glucose is that 90% of the label deuterium ends up in cytoplasmic water through glycolysis. So it, um, again, how much is lost is hard to determine based on just guessing. So it's, we believe that, uh, kind of getting a deuteronomics type of approach to um, MRI or using MRI as a, as a methodology, uh, then you can actually compare these images based on signal strength. And from there, uh, for fat tissue, you can determine based on the lack of proton movement or the lack of signal, how much deuterium those tissues uh, may contain. And in the meantime, you can actually do water discrimination, fat discrimination, scans and you can get closer to these answers but practically um, anywhere when proton movements are involved in any kind of biological or diagnostic processes indirectly those are all deuterium measuring devices and because deuterium compromises proton movements okay so we so we should be able to get an idea just using a standard mri um we don't need to use specific imaging mode or most MRIs we're going to, are going to be able to use are going to be able to use, uh, visualize deuterium by using this this approach indirectly, indirectly again, mm -hmm. and, and you have to kind of again work with some software aid 
to be able to analyze those images more efficiently. And you have to kind of consider the detune that is embedded in connective tissues, uh, collagen, uh, fibroid tissues, and, and so on, which are also part of fat tissue. And uh, you can use deuteronomics or deuteronomic metabolic imaging only if you want to look at flux, but you have to calculate for the loss of the tracer into metabolic water, which is, uh, it does not make this process easier to use. It's uh, practically a different angle, a different window to look at uh, the same kind of problem of how much deuterium there is in tissues. We don't, don't recommend loading anything with deuterium simply because they break down nanomotors and based on their uh, amount or their, their level of consumption, um, those can harm, especially um, mitochondrial structures. And uh, for us, it's, it's easier to work with some alternative approaches, for example, red light, which makes uh, uh, interstitial water in mitochondria more viscous, so it improves mitochondrial functions besides improving complex five, complex four, and complex five. Um, and it actually makes these uh, uh, proton bonds resonate more efficiently, especially in the 670 nanometer range. It's uh, really interesting that my high school buddy, Dr. Krauss Ferenc, Ferenc Krauss won the Nobel Prize in Physics since in, in 2023. He was born in May 62. I was, he was born in, in May 1662. I was born in June 12 in 62. So we are just a few weeks apart. And in high school, we were actually competing in physics very efficiently. So actually my classmate in high school beat Krauss, Ferenc Krauss, the Nobel Prize winning physicist for the, at the, at the second laser in a high school physics competition, national and international physics competition, which is kind of the funny part of the story. But anyhow, so now we are designing a project where we actually use this uh, at the second laser to excite biological samples uh, with this very short laser impulse and measure the red light output of the system just to see how much proton and how much deuterium is involved in this in this in the chemical makeup of of the sample so it seems that combining resonance which is magnetic or light it, it almost or electromagnetic frequency yeah. it, it, it 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 does not necessarily matter in the sense that as long as you can sensitively measure this or apply this electromagnetic range which is in the f like red light an infrared light range, you can actually mobilize protons and mobilize metabolic water, interfacial water more efficiently. So you can improve a lot of um, biological processes. Yet in the meantime, based on red light emission, if there's a lack of red light emission, then you know protons are not moving very efficiently. Indirectly, this is a deuterium measuring approach or a deuterium measuring device. And this is what we are kind of tweeting, tweet, just kind of establishing in a metabolic research arena. But uh, there, there are many, many new interesting things are coming along. Yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting. And, and look, the reason I was asking, I wasn't wasn't proposing uh, administering a deuterated tracer in terms of routine investigation and management of metabolic disease. It was more a, an academic interest. But I think the point is, um, 
giving people an insight into their visceral fat uh, is a very powerful motivator to implement the lifestyle changes that we've dis- discussed earlier. And if we could relatively easily with no no, no additional um, time on the MRI table, give people an insight into the deuterium content of that visceral fat or of their organs, then that would be even more st- stimulus in my mind to help them adopt a low deuterium lifestyle um, because it's just another way of, of, of improvising impetus give them more impetus to uh to 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 live that or make those make those changes yeah i i actually uh approach this practically i look at how fast my nails are growing how long i need to sleep at night to get into ketosis measure my ketone body levels and measure my glucose levels occasionally and uh eat once a day uh at night uh or for dinner, you know, dinner. My dinner meals are the main uh, courses, and those are animal, grass-fed animal. And I like this kind of fasting, a little bit thirsty, kind of exhaust, all kind of uh, organic uh, molecules uh, through mitochondrial uh, complete uh, uh, substrate oxidation. Uh, simply because uh, you don't have to. Um, load fully your system always because of kind of industrial-based recommendations. You need to operate on the in the optimal mode. Simply, you you don't fuel in all kind of gasoline or diesel oil when your engine is not designed for that. You don't uh, put um, diesel. Uh, fewer into a Formula One race car simply because it's not designed for that. It's it's a very different idea. It's a very different concept. It's a it's a very different set of principles how these engines operate. And uh, simply, it's the easiest way to describe this is that for optimal biochemical operations, you have to use the optimal fuel source and you have to use the optimal regulatory processes, and those are are dependent on um, how you understand this system? It's it's practically a doctor. I would say is a is a good mechanic that can actually adjust the carburetor, the injector intake, and the oxygen intake, and the exhaust pipe, how clean and the cat- catalyzator and so on. This this we have to bring it down to the mitochondrial level. And as long as you understand how these hybrid peroxisomal or mitochondrial beta oxidation and substrate oxidation systems work hand in hand and how they step in in different stages of your lifestyle or uh, their circadian rhythm, then you can actually tell them or design a, a food and the lifestyle pattern that can actually help or reverse chronic disease processes and uh, it's, it is just my general kind of experience that this seemed to work in every case where we have an opportunity and have a compliance with these yeah and and look i i have delved down very um you know the, the evolutionary rabbit holes of um what is a species appropriate diet and there is debate about um the role of dha in terms of the encephalization or the development of advanced um, human uh, intel- intelligence. And I think that definitely played a role in terms of scavenging bioavailable and very readily available sources of DHA from from the shores. But I mean, there's no doubt that that we were uh, 
carnivorous during periods of our evolution. And there is stable carbon isotope data showing um, that it, during periods of uh, in the late, I believe it's the late middle or late Pleistocene um, in the Paleolithic, well, I'm getting my my uh, my, my periods confused, but um, there, there was a period where Homo erectus was essentially a hyper carnivore. So um, it, we were hunting other carnivorous animals, just going to show that um, we've got deeply programmed um, uh, genetic m- machinery and metabolic machinery to deal with with animal fat. Listen, if um, you if you go to to cave art, you never seen, you only saw hunting. You know, cavemen. You never saw one eating carrots or you know, kind of gardening. Uh, it's practically all archaeological or historic, you know, art data points to this carnivore lifestyle. And more fatty it is, more deuterium depleted it is, the benef- more beneficial of for our brain development. And I was actually very stunned and 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 very interested in exploring a 4.2 million years old uh, <clears throat> exploration in, in north, northern Ethiopia where actually they found 4.5 million years old carnivore behavior from prehistoric men. They even found those tools, the, the stone tools that were used to break in through the schools of these uh, uh, herbivores or large plant-eating animals. And that must have been a prehistoric man who learned how to use these uh, tools. Uh, the other kind of species that lived in those faunas or or or, or lived on those bio- biological um, conglomerates or 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 communities, they were they were actually eating um, the meat, the 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 proteins, the interiors, the visceral fat, and so on. But the best stuff was left for this little prehistoric man, which is the bone marrow with the highest fat content. And they didn't have to compete with other predators because the other predators were not interested in those carcasses anymore. So safely, with plenty of food, they could evolve with less deuterium to develop. They didn't have to repair nanomotors because high deuterium uh, foods, they actually could use the brain and their fine fine finger uh, joint movements to actually perform some more complicated, more complex task, memory, society, and providing or building uh, life uh, kind of surroundings uh, that are more safe. They started cooking these soups, these these bone soups, or these because they move them around. And then about 400,000 years ago, close to Tel Aviv, they found cave, cave men's habitats where they actually used these bones and they saw back the skin around the bone and the bone marrow to conserve these, these bone marrow like canned food for the caveman that was actually good for eight weeks to consume. So... It, it was a huge part of human adaptation and, and human evolution, if you call it that way. But this is how the creator designed our system, biochemical systems, biological systems, to be able to <clears throat> use these very valuable, incredible um, um, 
beneficial low deuterium fat sources or hydrocarbon sources to design to supply uh, these uh, formula race car nanomotors, which we have as part of our mitochondrial complex five, with the best fuel whatsoever, because some of those, they spin about 100,000 rotations per minute. And those are the cilia of, of some some bacteria. They use the same nanomotors. If you look at any living species, as long as they use nanomotors, they use the same design. And uh, <clears throat> for that matter, they are all efficiently able to use either carbohydrates or, or fat. And based on what they use, this is what their phenotype behaviors and performance and uh, their abilities as, as species or individual um, hunters and so on are able to, to find the best sources, food sources. And for that matter, this is how and why. And that's, that's why the lions are so powerful and the cheetahs are so powerful because they don't mess with anything else other than just saturated animal fat. And um, I want to make the comment, and I and I agree because I, I think um, you know in, in empirical clinical practice, when you put a patient on a high high animal fat um, grass fed beef diet, um, you know all, all their problems go away. Uh, to use a, a very simplistic term, but uh, and I also think why the replacement of saturated animal fat in the human diet, which was tallow, which was fatty steak, which was butter, the replacement of that with these refined polyunsaturated seed oils like canola, soy, corn, vegetable, sunflower um, is has been possibly the most important food issue, um, even more so than sugar, even more so than carbohydrate. I think that is a critical problem in in our society is because not only um, was it the introduction of these uh, fat fats as the main fatty acid um, source in our diet collectively, but it's also the absence of the, those saturated animal fats and the fat-soluble vitamins that we got removed. So I, I talked to Tucker Goodrich about this, and he has extensively looked into the the pathology of um, of why these oils are so harmful. And it's his opinion that um, it's the breakdown products of linoleic acid specifically that um, are interfering with uh, the function of the mitochondria. And he's talked about the incorporation of linoleic acid into cardi- mitochondrial cardiolipin, which is 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 problematic. Uh, and then I t- talked to Dr. Jack Cruz, and he is in- insists he makes the point that it is actually the presence of deuterium in the seed oils that are making them so. Uh, toxic and so uh, harmful. So can you can you square that this for me or help us as the listeners understand the, the mechanism of harm of highly refined industrial seed oils? Um, is it mostly the deuterium? Is it mostly this linoleic acid breakdown products? Is it both? How do you think about it? Now, we wrote a paper about this in neuroecology called What to Eat and What Not to Eat. That is the question. And uh, you're right. Um, all these plant-based oil um, uh, nutritional items are either hydrogenated or treated with uh, saturated. They actually use their oily, fatty nature by using industrial saturation hydrogen using hydrogen gas. And for and some of those have 250 ppm deuterium concentrations. So once you start um, 
processing using organic solvents and extracting certain oil types, especially unsaturated uh, uh, fat, and you want to saturate it so they actually hold longer and hold better on the shelf when you put them and sell them. You know, this yellow big bucket of uh, frying, whatever those are, I just, I don't even walk through those aisles. I just <laughs> kind of just stay out of them simply because those are probably the worst uh, stuff you can you can encounter when, as far as nutrition is concerned. And um, because those are uh, um, not natural, even the plant-based uh, oils are not natural simply because they use organic extraction processes. They use various saturation processes to actually make them look in a certain way, make them uh, be consistent in a certain way. And for that matter, those are unsuited for human consumption. High in deuterium because of the saturation and organic extraction processes. And actually, we wrote a paper about this in, in neuro-college. You can go and check them out. And when we when you post this conversation, we can all link those. We can attach those those uh, uh, publications because this has been a, a big problem for a long time. There's a French team, uh, Dr. Robbins, with, uh, with Dr. Gabo Chomier, they did... Uh, work together on measuring um, deuterium content of plant-based and deuterium content of animal-based um, oils and fat uh, uh, products. Practically, these are those are very different because um, plants they cannot eat fat, meaning that they have only access to inorganic elements in the form of water, carbon dioxide, and sunlight. They cannot deplete deuterium. They cannot. The deuterium depletion process is based on light resonance, practically. So they are they are not able to control deuterium in their oil or in their hydrocarbon products as easy as animals can, because animals eat grass, they use citrate mitochondrial product to produce their own fat, so they all have to be deuterium depleted. That's why saturated animal fat is the safest to eat because they have the most efficient deuterium depleting process during fatty acid synthesis, and that's their mitochondria. That's their citrate synthase enzyme reaction, which uses matrix water to produce that, that citric acid, which is then through the citrate shuttle, is shuttled to the cytoplasma, melanoid coenzyme A or acetoacetate coenzyme A if it's uh, cholesterol synthesis is uh, produced, and they, they all come from, from mitochondria. Plants, they cannot do this. Plants, they have their own <clears throat> metabolic um, priorities simply because they depend on photosynthesis. That's why they have to stay in one place, soak up as much water as they can, and then they depend on animals to spread their seeds, and they wrap them into these uh, sweet, addictive, deuterium bombs called fruits, the wild boar comes, they eat the, the, the apples, they walk two kilometers, and sorry, excuse my language, but they have a diary and they shit everywhere. So that's how, that's how trees propagate themselves, because they can produce a high deuterium uh, addictive sugar load fruits, and 
kind of embed the seeds in there and the animals that eat them, they go into a sugar coma and they stunning, they start running uh, around like uh, like lunatics and they spread the seeds everywhere. That's the purpose of sugar. That's the purpose of carbohydrates. It's, it has no role in, in human nutrition. The only safest food that we can consume is grass-fed, animal-saturated fat. Yes, and it's it's interesting, and I I want to I'll definitely include that paper in the show notes. Did you ha, do you have um, specific deuterium concentrations for canola oil for sunflower oil? Can you can you tell me now? Are they are they two hundred and fifty? Are they two hundred? What, what is the deuterium level in these oils, or how can we test it? Uh, it can be anywhere from. 150 to 250 based on what kind of saturation process, what kind of organic extraction mm. process they need to read our paper in what to eat, yeah, what read- not to eat, that's the question, because that's, yeah. that paper was accepted in 24 hours by the chief editor, because he well, said, finally, finally, uh, the only thing he asked me is just to reduce the, the length of the paper from like, 1,200 words to 750 words. But practically, it was like a light opening to like a light bulb kind of situation to a um, oncological uh, or cancer-related project where they actually figured that actually the ketogenic diet is not working in those animal models. So we looked at the TACLED uh, the supplier of those animal diets, and sure enough, it was loaded with with plant based oils, the organic extraction and organic solvent extraction. It's, it's described in that paper. So, uh, my best guess is what two hundred fifty ppm or somewhere around. I just, you know, if if you look at uh, Dr. Robin's papers, if if you get <coughs> capsaicin from paprika, which is uh, <coughs> from from uh, home growers, it has 110 ppm. Once you go and buy capsaicin from any chemical company, they produce capsaicin that has a ppm of 160. So the natural processes are all very different from the industrial processes. And it doesn't matter what the oil comes from. When the industry steps, steps in, you can forget about it the team regulation of what nature is trying to accomplish. Yeah, and and that really makes me think that, yeah, how important that deuterium is in the terms of the seed oil toxicity story. And, yeah, it's the omega-6, yeah, it's the oxalams, but um, they're, they're, they're essentially deuterium, as you uh, as Cruz talked about, the deuterium, deuterium bombs. It's deuterium, yeah. and, um, and they're deuterium-enriched not only because of the industrial processing, but also because, as you've mentioned, photosynthesis is inherently – the process of plant metabolism is inherently unable to deuterium de- to 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 engage in deuterium depletion. So yeah, because they um, cannot oxidize, they cannot eat fat. Practically, mm-hmm. they only use inorganic elements to assemble an organic molecule. They don't have they don't have the luxury like a cow can do, practically producing their own fat using mitochondria. And, and and that really gets us to the next point, which is why grass-fed fat is so much more favorable than um, than uh, other forms of food. And have you recorded, and apologies if this has already been talked about in your paper, have you noticed a significant increase in deuterium content between grain-finished beef or grain-finished tallow um, compared to fully grass-fed uh, beef 
or be fat? Yeah, I'll give you an example. Uh, we did run IRMS, isotope ratio mass spectrometry studies on food sources, milk uh, components, milk products from grass-fed and from industry-based uh, uh, grain-fed animals, but there is about a 20 ppm difference, which okay. is huge. So, is, so it's big. It's really it's, huge. it's big. And, and, and Leslie, it's I large. mean, I, it's big. Yeah. Uh, part of my podcast is actually promoting the uptake of local regenerative farming, which is fully grass fed. Because if I'm advocating to my patients to eat a carnivore high meat diet, I, I, I want them to do so in an ethical, ethical way. But it, what you're telling me and what you're suggesting is that um, this is another reason why we need to be eating a fully grass fed animal is because um, the, the fat, the tissue, the adipose tissue, the fat tissue in that uh, animal is going to be um, much more deuterium depleted compared to the grain finished animal. The next question is, if I'm eating a Wagyu steak, which I don't do, but um, historically I have um, in the past, if that has intramuscular marbling, which is myosteatosis or ectopic fat deposition in the, the cow's muscle, is that fat intramuscular marbling going to be deuterium enriched compared to subcutaneous fat cap, say, on, on a porterhouse steak? Uh, no, those are going to be deuterium depleted. It doesn't matter how uh, fat is distributed in a grass-fed animal. You are in the range of below 120. Now, there may be variations based on where you recover that fat. It's uh, from muscle or from fat pads or from hind steak, from lean steaks, from sirloin, from filet mignon, from T-bone, from... They all may have a, 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 a slight variation, but they are all going to be below 120, 115 ppm. That's what matters. Yeah, if you okay. Go, if, you, if you eat a a a steak that comes from a industry kind of um, based, it's called Total Nutritional Protocol for Cows. They use soybeans, they use dried uh, jellyfish powder for protein supplements. They have no access to to, to graze or, or pasture-based uh, uh, plants. Um, those actually overload their fat because they don't have the ability to deplete sufficiently deuterium from their fat that they build up in their muscles simply because they are overloaded with grains, I mean, look at corn, look at, those are actually deuterium bombs, practically. The, those cows die in five years. They, they are not healthy either. Don't think those no. are, don't think those are actually good, good food sources. You, you, you actually eat diseased animal meat, uh, with very high deuterium content and the animals are sick. You're going to get sick. You could, they have animal metabolic diseases. You're going to have metabolic, you, you become, after all, what you eat, unfortunately, what you and eat. what you tunnel. And, uh, you know, practically this is the trick to understand this whole process is that you, 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 you cannot really eat uh, diseased animals simply who are not fed in their natural habitat simply because they're going to be carrying the same diseases like you would eat. 
grains and you would eat carbohydrates that your system is just not, your mitochondria are just not designed to burn those. So eventually these diseases go from species to species once they are lifted or taken out of, of their natural environment. Yeah. So, and I'm, I'm so glad to hear that from you because it's exactly what I have been advocating for. And, uh, along with friend Jake Wolke, who's a regenerative farmer and Tristan, who you interviewed, who interviewed you recently, um, we're, we're all in agreement that, um, a fully grass fed animal in eating its natural diet, whether that's venison, whether that's beef, whether that's bison, um, whether that's, um, yeah, even seafood, it's the best is going to be a wild caught animal or a fully grass fed animal, which is in, in terms of beef cattle agriculture is going to be fully, uh, rotationally grazed. Um, that's going to enrich that, that, that fat with the highest quality nutrients. So, um, another way of conceiving why we should be avoiding grain fed or feedlotted beef, why should we, we should be avoiding, um, uh, confined fed pork, um, monogastric animals, pork and chicken, which have been consuming the industrial products of uh, monocropping agriculture, which are going to be th- – th- those grains are contaminated with industrial herbicides because in the U.S. particularly, they're all they're all um, sprayed with glyphosate or other kinds of uh, herbicides, especially if they're Roundup Ready, which is most of the corn and soy in, in the U.S. So um, as you said, you, you are you, what you eat, but you're actually what you eat eat. So um, we need to be very specific then in terms of um, food selection. But uh, 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 we, we've got so much to talk about still that I think we maybe just have to r- record another episode. But uh, I, I want to ask you a couple final things. Um, and uh, in terms of testing using mass, tros- I, I believe it's mass spectroscopy that you use to determine the deuterium level. Is that an easy process? Because I really feel like we need to redo the food pyramid based on the deuterium content of food. And we need to be advising our patients to eat the, the, the most deuterium depleted foods, which as we've talked about, um, is going to include animal fat, um, predominantly at the top. Yeah. So the, most standard method of measuring deuterium in water is through spectral, it's a spectral photo, photometry, but it only able, it, it is only able to measure, uh, water deuterium content. And you can turn every, each and every organic molecule into water if you oxidize them, just like mitochondria does. So, uh, uh, the spectrophotometry is the standard method. The isotope ratio mass spectrometry is the organic molecules can be directly measured, but those are more expensive. Now, there are certain testing sites for deuterium from breath, from saliva, and from, from urine. Uh, those are available in Europe and in the United States. Um, you can search around. I can put some links up there where you can kind of give them some really good connecting points to measure these. But I agree with you. After all, deuterium content has to be shown just like kilocalories and uh, sugar content and so on. I think those those need to be shown on the label of any food item. Um, And then they don't even have to provide uh, kind of any other detail. I, yeah. I really just want to see the deuterium content. I, I don't care but what else there is in there. Um, I think that's the most important. When you see a patient, I think, after all, the most important lab 
result is your routine content in serum, in breath, in saliva, urine, whatever is accessible. Uh, it should be part of the workup protocols and the laboratory protocols. And after all, you have to teach your patients to kind of monitor their nail growth, monitor their hair growth, monitor their sleeping patterns, just so are they really sleeping a few hours and getting up um, like in good rested state, meaning that their detume is probably low or they sleep a lot and they are not able to kind of rest enough or they don't sleep well and they are not rested as, as, as part of their problem. So there are many ways of kind of living with this deuterium conscious um, kind of um, lifestyle. And these, these can be part of, of, of either your consultation. I can consult on these. It's very simple. My website, analyze this. I'm very happy to talk about these or on any individual. I'm not a medical like I don't, I'm a medical doctor, but I don't practice. I just uh, kind of give some ideas of how deuterium or living with deuterium uh, is very practical and what's the scientific and how those scientific uh, um, scenarios are, are lined up uh, behind these uh, kind of examples of, of, of lifestyle. Uh, uh, there are papers out there now uh, they um, um, actually report on deuterium content of certain foods. Gabo Shomya, he just published one. Uh, it's in uh, Cancer Control, uh, where he actually measured deuterium content of certain food items. And uh, you, can, you can actually get original data from there. Um, we are planning to publish results based on grain-fed, and uh, grass-fed um, animals. Those papers are in the process of writing. The Rye University in Amsterdam, we have a course, deuteronomics course, where you can get into kind of details of uh, these biochemical processes and these gardening and uh, cultivating processes that are deuterium-friendly. And sure enough, whatever you need, we are very happy to kind of uh, list with this podcast with this conversation and we can come back and talk a little bit more if you have more questions i'm happy to do that anytime yeah well thank you so much laszlo and and yes i think that everyone should be aware of the deuterium content of, of their food and particularly their fats and if you're eating seed oils then you're eating a lot of deuterium and if you've got metabolic dysfunction then you're going to be wanting to have a deuterium depleted diet um so we can definitely pick this conversation up again because I we haven't talked about cancer, we haven't talked about um, a whole whole bunch of other um, interesting things. Yeah, let's, let's with do regard. Other, yeah, let's do another one specific disease related processes. Now we covered the basics and the nutrients and nutrition elements and some lifestyle. But if there are particular disease processes that you would like to discuss, I'm very happy to do so anytime. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, and we, I'm very excited to push this one out. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk again soon and, uh, thank you again. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.